This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, I'm going to be talking about ants in the Anthropocene, or as the ants probably would call it, ants in the Anthropocene. Uh, more about that later. But earlier we heard from Leslie who described the original evolutionary underpinnings for the human capacity to control nature. But clearly, the scale of modern human societies has vastly amplified our effects on the environment. So let me leap ahead to the end of this talk to spell out my conclusions in advance. And those are that human nations are not alone in their capacity for global conquest and environmental destruction. Certain ants with huge societies are doing the same thing right now. So what do we mean by a society? I have to define that first. Well, when people speak of something like the United States, I think they have a general idea in mind that I'm going to try to express here. A society is a group with a sharply defined membership that we fervently pledge allegiance to, fight for, and will sometimes die for. We expect a society to last through the generations, and that membership in it is involuntary. On top of that, we usually expect a society to have a territory. Well, with that in mind, I think we can say that societies have been focal points for human life throughout history and prehistory. Societies have transformed and generally enlarged over time, but we've always had them, whether they were hunter-gatherer bands in alliance or tribal groups of various kinds. And I think we can also say that certain kinds of animals have societies. So the mob of meerkats, for example, going right on down to the lowly ant, uh, where societies are defined in terms of a great overlap in generations. Ant colonies are not just a simple family. So much of what I have to say came out of a book I wrote as a visiting scholar in the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology at Harvard, The Human Swarm, How Our Societies Arise, Thrive, and Fall. And that book has a pedigree that traces back more than 10 years to an invited review in behavioral ecology on ants and dis discussing what is a society. And then one called Human Identity and the Evolution of Societies in Human Nature. And most recently, I did a brief review of some of the main points of those books and articles in the Proceedings of the American Philosophical Society. So you can look that up if you want to know more. But before I proceed, I'm going to speak briefly on some of the conclusions of the book and papers before talking about ants. And one of them is that it's a mistake to define societies as they often are in terms of being cooperative or cooperative groups. This overstates the importance of cooperation in distinguishing societies. I think we need to take the emphasis away from cooperative and move it to group and speak of social identities as a psychologist would. And I would recognize societies as a certain kind of group with a clear and enduring membership. And then we can ask when and how cooperation arises within a society or even between societies. That would be a good topic for another talk sometime. Well, to uh, understand where ants fit in, I'm going to talk about my realization that there are two ways to form a society that hadn't been separated before. The individual recognition societies, exemplified here by the chimpanzee, and anonymous societies. Well, 
most vertebrates have individual recognition societies, and they include things like packs of African wild dogs, cores of elephants, prides of lions, and troops of monkeys. And in those species, every member of a society has to recall and know every other member as an individual. And the memberships in those kinds of societies are at most about 200 and often quite a bit less. And I would argue that that in part probably reflects the mental effort of just keeping track of everybody. So how do you develop larger societies? What of herds of wildebeest, schools of fish, uh, flocks of birds? Well, those are not societies. They don't have definite memberships. In the terminology of a psychologist, there are no outgroups. These are aggregations where individuals can come and go. Sometimes it pays for them to stay in the groups for a long time, but they don't belong to those groups in any permanent sense. So a flock of bats is quite fabulous, and the bats are social, but the flocks are not a society. So to break that 200 population barrier, you need to do something in order to create what I call anonymous societies. And in those, members are distinguished from outsiders based on shared features. I generally call those markers. In the book, I talk about humans being walking billboards for our identities. You know, we have a lot of characteristics that define us as individuals. We have characteristics that define us as parts of different groups within the society and characteristics that set us off as a member of a certain societies. Um, So these kinds of societies, these anonymous societies, allow for strangers. And because of that, they can grow to much bigger sizes, including in humans, but also in ants and other social insects. They also have anonymous societies, and they do it in a vastly simplified manner. Uh, For ants, the national emblem is a scent. It's a series of hydrocarbon molecules on the ant surface. Have that scent and you're golden. Don't have it and you're in serious trouble. So based on those scents, those national emblems, ant societies can be all sizes and shapes. So you can have societies of just a few individuals like this colony living in a hollowed out twig on the forest floor in Costa Rica, just a handful of ants there. And you can have societies that are pretty huge. Uh, This one in French Guiana was the size of a tennis field. The nest is right there. Probably a million ants are down underground there. These are leafcutter ants, and they may have hundreds and thousands of chambers going down 20-plus feet into the ground in which they grow gardens that are quite massive in aggregate. We heard about mass agriculture earlier in this talk. These ants are actually raising a fully domesticated fungus. It lives only with the ants. One of the characteristics of large societies, and it's very common, is diagrammed here. This is an illustration from a book from the 1800s. The caption says these are ants at play. Unfortunately, this is not the case. This was only figured out much later. These ants are not playful. Ants never play. I talk about this in the American Journal of Play. Uh, The ants are actually killing each other. These are two colonies, two societies that have butted up against each other. Well, One of the topics that really interests me is described in a Scientific American article, Ants and the Art of War, and that is the connection between the forms of aggression that societies show and their populations. As societies get bigger, the form of aggression can change, and war is an option that's least risky in big societies. What is a war? Well, I think most people have in mind what I 
right down here. And that war is a concentrated engagement of group against group in which both sides risk wholesale destruction. Unfortunately, the idea of war has been watered down a lot in the popular press particularly. We speak of war often, even in anthropology, one, there are other words to describe other kinds of aggression. So I would say that things that are not wars, that have their own terms, are hunter-gatherer or chimpanzee cell raids and uh, lopsided massacres and things like that. And I think we'd do an immense service to the study of evolution of aggression if we made these distinctions. And the pattern I see is that war emerges in both ants and humans when societies grow in the high tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands. So this capacity for conquest and war brings with it a potential for a lot of environmental change and control. So large societies like army ants, a species that swarms like an army ant as shown here, can alter the species diversity of the forest floor in a variety of ants and change biodiversity. Well, warfare and the control of the environment in the way we're interested in here reaches a peak in very few ant species. These include the Argentine ant, the species I'm going to describe today. The Argentine ant controls most of Southern California. There are a couple million Argentine ants in the average backyard there. If there are ants in your kitchen, they're probably the Argentine ant. Now, you can take one of these Argentine ants from your kitchen in San Francisco, put it in a vial and drive it 500 miles down to the Mexican border where the mm, passport agents are checking people's credentials and the ant will still be fine. You can drop it off and it will simply merge and start doing its thing with the other ants that are there because it has the same national identity across this whole area, the same colony scent. But if you take that ant to an area east of San Diego called Escondido uh, and drop it beyond a borderline that you can't detect, but the ants treat with their lives, it will be dead within minutes. And here's the area. This upper middle class neighborhood has the largest battles ever recorded for any species, being studied by David Hallway at the University of California at San Diego. So just out of view beyond the edge of this street, is a borderline between two vast ant empires that extend for many miles. And when you look down, peel away the grass and look down, you will find just piles of dead ants extending in a line that can go for miles with a million ants dying every week along those battlefronts. And it turns out that all of Southern California is occupied by just four colonies called super colonies of the Argentine ant. The largest one extends from San Francisco to the Mexican border, as I described. Three others converge here in Escondido and have these battlefronts. And what's remarkable about this isn't only the level of aggression, but that those colonies can continue to expand indefinitely. And what makes these species extraordinary and like us in a way is that they're the only kinds of animals with societies capable of growing without bounds. As long as the environment is good, they can continue to grow until they meet a competing colony. So how do you get such hyper-aggressive ants? Well, it turns out the Argentine ant is from down in Argentina, northern Argentina, and it lives in the Paranal River drainage. 
And this particular area, shown in this uh, view from above, is the breeding ground for some of the most brutal invasive species on Earth. A half dozen of the worst invasive ants come from here. And here are two of them. Uh, they're fighting over a grasshopper. You see the grasshopper's head below them. The, below you see the Argentine ant, and it's biting the leg of a fire ant above. And the fire ant has extruded its sting with some poison at the tip of the sting off to the left. And uh, the fire ant, of course, has taken over the American South, and the Argentine ant has taken over California. So how have they come to be so lethal at battles in this area? Well, it turns out that this is a floodplain. And here the Argentine ants are eating a piranha that's floated up onto the shore. And what happens there is unique. Most parts of the world where two big colonies of any sort collide, there's something called the deer enemy effect that emerges over time. Initially, there's a high level of death, and then things settle down. A border is uh, settled on, and even a no-man's land or no-ants land emerges between the armies, and there's relatively little mortality. But here, because the water is always rising and falling, the ants are forced to leave their battlefronts and go up the hills or up the trees until the waters go down again and start their battles each time from scratch. And it appears they've lost the deer enemy effect. They simply go at it full bore, killing each other constantly. In addition to that, they've become proficient at moving anywhere convenient at a moment's notice. So if a boat pulls up uh, down there in Argentina, the ants run up the gangplank immediately. Any place that they can live, whether it's on the top of a hill when the water rises or a boat is convenient to them. And they get transported around the world. So here's a picture from Monaco. And you can be sure those ships, even though they're privately owned boats, probably have plants with some Argentine ants living in them. And those Argentine ants can move up into those hills, which are perfect breeding grounds for this species. But what's happened is that the very first colony to arrive in Europe has expanded its range and controls the landscape utterly. So a thousand miles of European coastline is occupied by a single colony of Argentine ants, and it's the same colony that occupies most of Southern California. The col a colony that goes from San Francisco down to the Mexican border is the same colony as this one. Uh, they have the same identity. You can move the ants between them without a problem. That's, that same colony has taken over parts of Japan and other parts of the world. But a different colony has taken over, say, southern Africa. So the ants not only uh, expand across the world, but their very colonies expand indefinitely across the world. So what does this all mean for assessing ants as contributors to the Anthropocene? Well, there are a number of things that these huge colonies do. They can displace and knock out native ants. Virtually all the native ants disappear where the Argentine ants have control. They can drive away pollinators and reduce the pollination for all kinds of native species, scaring away the bees just because they're all over the plants as well as the ground. They can eat seeds rather than disperse and bury them as the native harvester ants would do. So the seeds lie in the, the ground surface and dry out and die rather than being buried by the ants where they can sprout. And they harry animals like corn toads until they die. So this species and others are declining. In places like Hawaii, all kinds of invertebrates are on the decline. 
So science fiction would have us believe that the secrets uh, for ants taking over the world would be to have the ants themselves grow huge. So you have movies like Them in the 1950s of the giant ants mutated. But the actual secret of the ant success is to have their colonies grow huge. So here's an illustration by Peter Cooper. He's the guy who does Spy versus Spy for Mad Magazine. And he illustrated me as if I was composed of ants, because I think a lot about ants, probably that's what he had in mind. But let's imagine your body consisted of an equal weight of ants. It would take millions of ants to add up to the weight of your body. But now those ants can do things you can't do. They can spread out over a huge area, and they can survive things you can't. You can't kill an ant colony with a bullet to the head. You can step out on the ants all day and they'll just keep coming. And the ants control the environment in a much finer level than you could. Every grain of sand is inspected by ants. In addition, the ants can thrive where humans would starve just because they can eke out resources that we can't find, like sugar and other things uh, in our kitchen under the, you know, under the sink. So those ants end up being very important in controlling the world. And the role, their role in the Anthropocene really is how they control the environment under our feet. And what's particularly impressive from the human perspective is those large ant societies achieve this control with absolute cooperation among their members. I talked about cooperation earlier. Humans deal with a lot of uh, social conflict in their societies. These huge colonies have none of that working against them. So thanks very much. I'm going to dedicate this talk to my mentor, E.O. Wilson, uh, and uh, who died last month. And uh, he, here he is at uh, the opening of a Smithsonian exhibit I did on ants. But my one proud moment was giving Ed an award from the Explorers Club uh, uh, which was a statue based on my photograph that I showed earlier. And I just have a tribute that I wrote about him. A lot of formal things have come out, but I put out something in Skeptic Magazines that presents Ed as the man. So I hope you can look at it. Thanks again. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.